It is great to see each of you here tonight and those that are online. Thank you for your presence. We appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to continuing our lesson series, uh, Life Enrichment. And um, I hope it's been a class that's proven to be helpful in some way to uh, encourage and strengthen you uh, in your walk with Christ. Let's please go together to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we honor you and we praise you. For your name is the name above all names. And your name, Lord God, is so powerful. So powerful to which the Jews were even afraid to speak your name. Help us, Lord God, to reverence your name as we reverence you. Thank you for Jesus, your great son, who came and died that we might live, who suffered on this earth, but lived so that we might be able to be called your children. He died so that it's possible and that your grace and mercy and the blood that was shed in our behalf brings the complete and total satisfaction to you, O oh God. Thank you for the Godhead. Thank you for your mercy, for your care, and for your love. Please bless us tonight as we study your word. Please open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your truth. In Jesus' name, if it be thy will, we pray these things. Amen. So we uh, we left at Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to go back to Hebrews 4 and verse 15. And we left with a question. And then I want us to think about maybe the answer to that question. And I won't deal with it in, in, in too much depth. But I want us to think about the question that was asked. And that is, do you believe in the, all the points made in Hebrews 4, uh, chapter uh, verses 15 and verse 16? How much do we really believe? this passage. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Has Jesus been tempted in all points or in all ways as we are or have been? Well, uh, in, in one area, I mean, it's a very simple, very simple. You think about in principle, there are really only three true categories of temptation and th- three true categories of sin. Uh, and those are the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I mean, that that's the whole totality of Satan. If you think about all evil, everything that's evil falls under the lust of the eyes, the lust of the... Of the uh, uh, the the mind and the bolster pride of life. And so those all three of those fall under the umbrella of sin and Satanism and wickedness and evil. And so that is the principle. And so that alone we know we see that in the temptation of Jesus, uh in the the when Satan took him out uh to a place in the wilderness to be tempted, that right there we have the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the bolster pride of life. So that is the category or the, the principal categories of of sin and there's nothing outside of that and so again coming back to the the simplicity though it's powerful but the simplicity of of satanism and wickedness and evil it's it's narrowed down to those three things and so whenever you are discussing any matter of life with anyone on earth about sin it has to fall under one of those three categories 
And you can't go anywhere else because there's nothing else. In fact, the Bible makes it clear in 1 John 2, 15 through 17 that that's all that's in the world. That's it. There isn't anything more than that. Of course, the umbrella of Jesus and God is love. Everything that you can think of about God fits under the umbrella or the category of love. And so, generically speaking, yes, it's very easy to prove that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are. Um, but then you might ask the question, as some have, has Jesus really been there? Because it doesn't say he empathizes, it says he sympathizes, right? And so it's very different. And so the text is making it clear that Jesus Christ has been there, right, um, for us. All right, so let's think about this in our lesson. Let's go to Mark uh, chapter 1. Have you thought about, I mean, if you really sit down and think about the trouble that Jesus Christ has been in throughout his life. In other words, um, the things, the emotions that, that he suffered. Let's start with the, a very simple one. Maybe some of you are, tonight are, are watching this and you're thinking, wow, I had a long day and I'm very, I'm tired. And sometimes we might even think about, uh, when it comes to the end of a day or even whether it be worship or wherever it is that we feel, we feel kind of exhausted. If you're in a depressed state, you definitely feel exhausted, very, very tired. Was Jesus ever tired, exhausted, mentally drained? Of course, it's one of the major temptations. Satan waits for us to become weak, uh, mentally exhausted and drained, and then he comes along with uh, with amazing temptations in our lives. And remember, now we, Satan is not omnipresent or omniscient. We're not saying that. Um, we remember it's our weaknesses, it's our desires that we give in to, right? So it's the weakness of the mind that presents the opportunity for the mind to do the things that it so chooses or desires to do. So at some point in our lives, and this is kind of moving to that next that next step of temptation, you gotta own up to your own stuff. Okay, so I can't blame everybody else. We have to own up to our own stuff. But we'll get to that point uh in another study on another day. But for right now, Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they had come out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon. And Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to him about her. I want to pause for just a moment. I know the scripture is still up there. But notice how many times, three so far, that it says immediately and immediately and immediately. Continuing, verse 31. And he came to her and raised her up, and ta- uh, taking her by the hand. And the, f- the fever left her and she waited on them. And when evening had come after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and all those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city, it's hyperbole, but lots of people, had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, He arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. 
And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out for. And he went out uh, into their synagogue throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out their demons. So, so imagine here he's, you know, all day he's, you know, dealing with people and then into the night he's dealing with people and then he finally lays his head down and then he gets up and early in the morning to go and uh, to pray and then they look for him. They're searching for him. Everybody's here. I mean, can you imagine the pressure that Jesus had undergone? And this doesn't just stop in Mark chapter 1. It continues throughout the life of his ministry, if you will, the years of his ministry where people are always knocking on the door of Jesus. Jesus, give me this. Jesus, give me that. Jesus, do this. Jesus, do that. You know what you don't uh, really see a lot of, although the Bible tells us the women were ministering to Jesus, um, but you know, where did he get his relief from? You know, who, who was there for Jesus uh, in comparison to the rest of the world who continued to say, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. It gets old and tiring. And Jesus, no doubt, dealt with a tiresome and weary life while he lived on the earth, especially during the years of his ministry. Mark chapter 6, verse 30 and 31. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So just think now, all right? Again, the the crowds are pressing over and over and over and over again on Jesus. Jesus, give me this. Jesus, can you do that? Jesus, somebody's sick. Jesus, I need this. You know, and and that gets old, right? It gets old. And you can imagine in those, in those days, those crowded cities and, and, and the pressure that was placed upon him. And so Jesus, no doubt, um, dealt with being tired and exhausted and weary from all the labor that he, um, exemplified, uh, while on the earth. Turn to Luke chapter, chapter six, beginning at verse seven. I want to look at also the scrutiny and, and the pressure of, of the mind from humanity. Uh, verse seven. All the way down to verse 7, it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. So back up for a moment uh, on that slide there, Judy. So, okay, so imagine this. Now, you're out there doing the work. You're doing your work. And, and people are watching you. How does it feel when people are watching you? I mean, you know, you're you're not... You're not doing anything wrong. You're trying to do good. You're, you're in a, maybe in a happy place in your mind. And you look over and you notice that these people are kind of watching you. They're, they're looking to see everything. They're, they're, what are you, they want to know what you're doing. And, and, they're, and they're watching you with, a, with an eye of scrutiny, with tremendous pressure. And they, they're looking at you as if you're going to do something that's evil or something that's wrong. And they're ready to wrongfully accuse you of something. So imagine Jesus is there, and he has an opportunity to do good, and they're watching him. And remember the whole idea with the scribes and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the the whole idea later in Jesus' life is we want to watch him, catch him in a sin, and put him to death, right? And right now, we want to watch him and show this goody-two-shoes, show this man that he's not the Messiah. And they're watching him, not to see if he's the Messiah. It's different. You're watching him to say, wow, I want to be like the master. I want to be like the master. 
You know, let me watch. Oh, Jesus, that's wonderful. That's not why they were watching him. They were watching him to scrutinize him. And even when he performed a miracle, they were, they were there to deny the miracle. Well, that's not real. That's not true. And so imagine the scrutiny that Jesus Christ had gone through in the world that in a, in a way, in essence, they felt as though Jesus could do nothing right, although he did everything right. So now, back again in verse 7 of Mark chapter 6. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Rise and come forward. And he arose and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discuss together what they might do to Jesus. And it was at that time that he went off to a mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he named as apostles. So imagine that this scrutiny sends Jesus into the mountains by himself. To get some time away. Right? And he, he spends time in prayer. Not, not just over what, what is going on in his life. But what's about to happen. The choosing of the twelve apostles. And in those prayers. Imagine him praying. And he's going through all of the names. And he gets to this one name. You know the name. Judas. And he prays for him. How would you have prayed about or for Judas? Right? Here's my betrayer. Here's the man who is going to turn me over to the enemy. So not just as he left the crowd and gone off to a lonely place, he's praying to God for strength, um, and, and he's been scrutinized, and they're trying to find a reason to, to destroy him, trying to figure out what to do with him. Now he goes up and he prays, and, and he prays for his disciples, and it's wonderful until he gets to that one name. But not for Jesus. For Jesus, he prays for that one name. He loves his enemy in spite of what he's going to do. So much so that in John 13, uh, when we look at Jesus uh, kneeling down in humility, uh, he beginning at verse 1, I want you to think with me just for a moment. Let's read through this first. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside the garment, and taking a towel, he girded himself about, and then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so Jesus would ever so carefully and cautiously and gently and kindly wash Judas' feet. I would have had a problem with that. <laughs> I would have struggled with Judas. 
I may have given Judas the eye. I know what you're doing. I may, you know, I would have had a really hard time washing the man's feet who is living a life of deceit and has been looking for an opportunity to destroy me, has been pilfering from the money, has been living a wicked life, has been a hypocrite, etc. And I'm going to humble myself and get down there and wash his feet? I'm just being honest. I'm human. I'd had a hard time with that. But Jesus gets down and he's expected to be better than us, better than, than humans, to live his life sinlessly, ever so carefully and gently with loving care. Washes Judas' feet. John 15. John chapter 15. And mind you, we're not even talking about the life of Jesus as he grew up and he looked around and he saw all of this wickedness and evil. And we'll talk maybe about that at the very end of this particular session uh, today. But John 15 and verse 25, and the Bible says, but they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And I'm going to come back to that again later in this lesson. But imagine being hated. That's the one thing we don't want. We don't want that. We don't want anyone to hate us. If someone says, you know, I just hate you. I can't stand you. It bothers us. We don't want people to dislike us. That's what makes evangelism and Christianity sometimes so difficult. We want to be liked and loved by everyone, but that's not going to happen. And Jesus, the Bible says, they hated Jesus without a cause. They had no reason to hate him. Name one thing Jesus did wrong. Now, from an earthly perspective, I'll tell you what he did wrong. He told the truth. (laughs) That's what he did wrong. He pointed out the true error of humanity and the wickedness of humanity, and they didn't like it. So the one thing he did wrong was he told the truth. And you know, we, we must admit, the truth does hurt. And we don't always like to hear the truth. Jesus told the truth, did and practiced the truth. He lived a life of truth. And he was hated for it. Have you ever done a good deed? Or done some things in your life and you, you thought maybe you'd get a thank you, but instead you received something different? How'd you feel? I'm just kind of walking you through uh, very generically, the life of Jesus to show you that Jesus has not only been there, he knows what we're going through. So he, he truly can sympathize with our weaknesses. The difference is he didn't sin. Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. We're going to begin at verse, um, in, in the garden, verse 39 of Luke 22. And we could, I think we could almost, you know, talk about this subject of, of Jesus understanding truly what we are going through, just simply dealing with the garden and the cross. <laughs> you know, probably in right there, but we're just generically looking at this and thinking about this, this, uh, this topic as we're discussing it. What about, what about agonizing pain? What about, uh, tremendous sadness? And, you know, we could, we could draw a lot of emotion out of uh, Luke 22 uh, in the garden. We could draw a lot of emotion out. I'll allow you to draw out the emotion, the thing that you can think of when you read about the garden and how Jesus felt. And you can analyze that and think about how that fits into your life. So you can say, yes, Jesus truly understands the agony and the suffering and sorrows of life. Verse 39 of Luke 22. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom, 
to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he had arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he kneeled down and began to pray, saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So here Jesus is. And he's praying to the Father. Father, if it's your will, please remove this cup. And we pray that. We'll say, Father, if it's your will. But we don't always mean it, do we? You know, we're like, dear Lord, I, uh, I, I really like this car. But, but only if it's your will. Dear Lord, I signed the contract. <laughs> I, I hope it was your will. Right? right? Jesus meant it when he prayed it. If it's your will, remove the cup. But it, if it isn't your will, then he was willing to, to go forward to, uh, to suffer in, in, in a terrible death for, for humanity. And notice the text says that the angels came to strengthen him. You know, he was in a weak moment, in a weak state of mind, and he needed to be strengthened for what was coming his way. And then he gets to the apostles, the disciples, and he, he finds them the third time. He finds them what? Sleeping again. Don't, don't you care? <laughs> to the apostles. So Jesus truly has been to that, that moment or in that hour of, of struggle and despair and loneliness and all the all the emotion that you can think of that that deal with humanity and our deepest deepest sorrows he's been there john chapter 11 please john chapter 11 beginning at verse 32 verse 32 therefore when mary came where jesus was She saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, Behold how he loved him. And so here, this sorrow and grief, I mean, wow. Why would, okay, analytically, right? Here we are too smart for ourselves. Well, Jesus is the son of God. So Jesus, you know, knowing everything about life and death, he already knew where Lazarus was. So why is he crying? (laughs) That's the heartless commando spirit. Jesus wept for the people. Because of the sorrow and sadness that was in their hearts. Right? He wept for them. For Martha and Mary and some of the sincere Jews who were there weeping because they loved Lazarus so. And so, even though he knew those things, yet Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow and grief in his heart. And the text says that Jesus wept. Here's a question. Have you ever, I know you have, been ignored How'd that feel? Now you were talking to someone, excuse me, you know, and they just, they just ignore you and you're like, really? 
what really? Well, turn to John chapter two. John chapter two. Just because of his, it's his mother, she doesn't get a pass. <laughs> Maybe she does, but anyway. Beginning in verse one. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So Jesus is trying to make a profound point here in his statement. And uh, and she just says, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. I mean, in other words, she had this expectation that Jesus is going to fix it. Even though he was saying, hey, wait a minute, I have nothing to do with this. Ignored. Completely ignored. Now, you, you might say, yeah, well, Jesus Christ is, is, uh, is, you know, the son and she's the mother and, and then I remind you that, no, Jesus Christ is God. Right? So, keep that in mind. Can you imagine ignoring God? Think about the frustration. The frustration that, that he felt. Uh, let's go back to Matthew chapter 23. My question is, at what point in, in the life of Jesus should he have given up? At what point? Going back from his early childhood up until the, the end of the days of his ministry, at what point should he have given up? And the obvious answer is, God never wants us to give up, ever. So Jesus felt frustration and anger. And why was he so frustrated and angry at, in this text? Well, because of the hypocrisy and the sin of the rulers of the people and their hardness of heart and their lack of desire to change. Regardless of what was in front of them, it, it, it just didn't matter. Verse 33 of Matthew chapter 23. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you Prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in their synagogues and persecute from city to city. That upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous bloodshed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So here Jesus is is angry at these people. And saddened as well. He's also saddened. And he's saddened because of the very statement that he made. They're going to hell. And Jesus doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God is not slow about his promises. as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. God doesn't want us to go to hell. Ezekiel 33. God wants the sinner to turn from his wicked way, to turn from his wicked way, instead of being punished. God doesn't want to sin Anyone to hell. And what actually happens is we send ourselves, don't we? And so Jesus 
through his frustration and, and all of his anger and all that he struggles through, he weeps, he mourns over Jerusalem. As the verse continues on, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, God just wanted to gather them up and love his people and take care of them. But they've rejected God over and over and over and over again. Have you ever been rejected? Yeah. If you're dating now, you're going to get rejected. Oh, yeah, been rejected. How'd that feel? Be rejected. How'd it feel to, to go to maybe your boss or to go to one of your friends or whomever it may be and have a need and be rejected? And it wasn't rejection because it wasn't something that, that was... Um, deserving all that they had, it was rejected because they just simply didn't want to do it. How does that make you feel? So Jesus, standing in the midst of, of, of his people, and they rejected him. And then they get to, uh, go to John chapter 2, they get to the temple, and, and when Jesus gets to the temple, the things that he saw, that he witnessed, he had to cleanse the temple of all the wickedness that was going on. And so instead of honoring the Father, Instead of honoring God, instead of honoring Jesus, no, they were, they were, they were being very wicked and evil. And so Jesus in John 2 and verse 12, another level of frustration and, and anger. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he pulled out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these away and stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. So here, the Passover, it was a celebration to remind the Jews, it would be like us partaking the Lord's Supper. And, and Jesus came in here and we were having, you know, we had turned this event, this opportunity, taking the bread and the, and the fruit of the vine into a, a wonderful festive event. I mean, it's not a celebration for what God has done for us. Jesus dying on the cross for he is our Passover. Uh, It wasn't a reminder of what God did in the Exodus, of what, you know, the blood over the doorpost. No, we turned it into this great festive event. And we had all kinds of things. We had cars out in the parking lot that we were looking at. And we had, we had, um, uh, lots of flashy things inside the building, and we had lots of food over here, and lots of this over there, and this thing, the Passover was nothing to us. It was meaningless. And Jesus Christ, being the Passover lamb, who's about to die, how would you feel if the thing that you did for your people, and they just treated it as if it was nothing, as if it was just dirt, they had forgotten the meaning of the Passover. And Jesus cleanses the temple. And then there's this, this um, anticipation of horror. Something that's come in their way because of the fact that Israel uh, had become so wicked and so evil. This anticipation of horror. 
Have you ever, let's turn to Luke 19. Have you ever anticipated something? And usually what we anticipate doesn't actually, doesn't actually come to pass because we're not, we're not prophets and we don't know. It's never as bad as we build it up to be usually, right? But Jesus knows exactly what is coming to the rebellious house of Israel, to the Jews who have lived such wicked and evil lives. And he says in Luke 19, beginning at verse 41, beginning at talking about the temple again, cleansing the temple, and because of their wickedness, verse 41 says, And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you out in every, in on every side, hem you in on every side, excuse me. You will level and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Wow. And Jerusalem will be destroyed. And Jesus mourned over that. He wept over what was coming. And why was it coming? It was coming because of their wickedness. Because they ref- here is God right in front of you and you can't even see it. Imagine how that would feel. Here is good right in front of you. Here is love right in front of you. You can't even see it. Maybe to the spouse. You're out there living with someone else and I've loved you all my life and you can't even see it. I'm telling you, every emotion that we can muster up, Jesus has been there in one way or another. Look at John 7. John chapter 7. I may need to speed up just a moment. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. How about sibling rivalry? He went through that one too. (laughs) Can you imagine his mother explaining to the children, well, boys, this is Jesus. He's... He's, just, he's the son of God. In fact, he is God. He is actually literally God with us. And he, she tells him the angel and she tells the whole story and, and, but they wouldn't believe him. They wouldn't believe their mother. Is there, they think their mother was a, a liar. And then you read the text about their mother and she was a righteous person. And then here's Jesus and there's a sibling rivalry and his own brothers, though his mother told him everything about Jesus and they could see him. They watched him. He lived a righteous life. And yet, they didn't believe him. They refused to believe. Beginning in verse 1. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, uh, the feast of Booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judah, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret uh, when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, you show yourself to be to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So here Jesus is not going because they're going to kill him. And his brothers are like, no, no, go. How would you feel? How would you feel? I mean, and they were looking for a little bit of fame for themselves. You know, if you're going to show yourself to the world, let's go do it now. John 16, verse 32. John 16 and verse 32. There the text says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home 
and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Loneliness? Been there. Everybody's going to deserve it. How would you feel? Have you ever felt like that? Like No one's there for you when you're in your darkest hour. Everyone's gone. There's no one there. Jesus says, I'm alone. But I'm not alone because the Father's with me. But the feeling of loneliness, Jesus was there. Now, all these things are, are emotions that come from the flesh, right? It's the human, uh, the human of us. And I know it's mental anguish. Um, so, but it's in the flesh. It's from an earthly perspective. But there's an entirely different level of, of these feelings that Jesus has that we don't see evidenced in his life, but we know it's true. And I want to go all the way back to Proverbs chapter 6 to show you just a few, and then we'll begin to wrap this lesson uh, up. Proverbs chapter 6. And we need to think about this. God on the earth every single day had to see the very things he hates. Verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. And Jesus walked in our midst. You think if you were God, and you had to witness the things you hate every single day. Yeah, maybe you'd want to bring down those angels and destroy the world, but not Jesus. He endured it. And though they wouldn't believe in him, the question I asked in Numbers 14 and verse 11, how long will this people not believe in me? How long will they spurn me? What does God have to do to cause us to believe in what he says and to believe in him? What else could God possibly do for you? Americans in particular. What else could God do? I mean, look at us. We got everything. (laughs) What else could God do? When will we ever be satisfied? When can we ever live our lives in such a way to where the emotion that we bring to Jesus is the emotion of happiness? Do we strive for that every day to bring the emotion of happiness to our God every day? To where he can look down on this earth and see the wickedness that that continues, but find joy in his heart because his servants are striving to live for him peacefully and living honorably for him. John chapter 15, please. What emotions do you think uh, Jesus went through on the cross? I mean, think about the, the list of things that he would have maybe, you know, gone through. Uh, physical pain that, that leads to death. Uh, injustice. Uh, disappointment. You know, cruelty. I mean, he's, the whole thing is there. Everything is found in Jesus Christ. John 15, uh, beginning at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me, hates my Father also. And if I had not done anything, excuse me, if I had done, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. 
But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. For they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus says, you know, historically speaking, there has been about 400 years where there has been no miracle. The dark ages, if you will. No prophet, no miracles. The only miracle that comes is Jesus Christ is born and John the Baptist is born. After that, there are no miracles. John the Baptist does not perform one miracle. And then Jesus comes for 400 years and there's no miracle. And he performs a miracle in front of them and they still doubt and say, could this be the Messiah? 400 years of nothing, and all of a sudden, he does another miracle, a profound miracle, a miracle that is undeniable. And they still say, eh, well, I'm not sure I'm ready for this yet. What else could God do to help us to understand? And what else did Jesus feel? What about compassion and mercy, empathy, forgiveness, joy, and then the greatest one, victory, right? And why did he do it? What was his driving force and motivation? And this is what we're going to get for us, for our hearts. What will be our driving force, our driving motivation that makes me turn on the, the, you know, the, um, the Wi-Fi, if you will, and turn on the television on my phone, my device, and watch Bible study and study with the church? What's the driving motivation that causes me to, to, to worship with the church? Every time the doors open, what, what is the driving motivation? It's not what I have to do. It's what I get to do. And what is the driving motivation? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the driving motivation. That's what gets us from the physical wickedness and evil and, and from that mind of, of of selfishness to that love of God. It's the love of God that drives me to do what I do. That's what compels me to live for Jesus, to honor Jesus, to love his word, to dig into his word, to pray to him, talking to him, to read his word, allowing him to talk to me. That's the driving motivation, the love that we have for God. What's going to help me to feel better inside? Love. Love. Because the love that we have for God will eventually translate into a love for self. For God himself said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love God with everything you can muster up. And love your neighbors, you love yourself. But I've got to learn to love myself. And I can only learn to love myself when I realize the position that I'm in because of the great love that God has for me. And the position that I am in because of the great love that I have for God. So Jesus, Hebrews 2, in verse 17, Jesus is that perfect high priest. He is the one who loves us and cares for us and keeps us and comforts us. And in verse 17 of Hebrews 2, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So God is there to bless us and to keep us. And he understands what we're going through. So I want to encourage you tonight. 
in your prayer life, to understand and remember that you're praying to the masterful God who knows everything you think. He knows it. So you don't have to go to him in, 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 in bashfulness or in fear, rather, with respect and honor. Go to God and ask. Make your request. Dear God, please help me to be a better Christian. Take away the things that are keeping me from uh, serving you, the things that are keeping me out of heaven. Take those from me, Lord God. Help me to be the person you want me to be. Help me to, to love you like you love me. Help me to learn to be sacrificial and to be a servant that you would have me to be. Help me, Lord God, to do your will. Not my will, but your will be done in my life. Finally, brethren, we serve not only the living God, but we serve a wonderful God who understands our every weakness, our vulnerabilities, our, our strengths. He understands everything about us. And you can give your life and your heart to him, and he'll take care of you. The question tonight is, how much of this do you actually believe? Thank you. The lesson is yours. God bless each and every one of you. Good evening. <clears throat> you know, it's a blessing to have elders. Elders can, uh, they can ask you to give a lesson and take away your excuse for not being prepared all at once. James came to me, he said, you know that lesson you gave the other day of men's Bible study? I said, yes, sir. He said, can you give that on, on Wednesday? I said, uh, yeah, yes, sir, I can do that. Um, and it's all about growing. Uh, and, and what a blessing that men's Bible study has also been for us to get together and grow and study, encourage each other, pray for each other, and help each other. Uh, and growing is what I want to talk about right now. I want to start with five questions. Are you putting God somewhere in your lives? Or are you, or are you allowing God to fill up your life? Are, we, are you making God a priority? Do you remember God daily? Or can you not stop thinking about him? Do you count your blessings from God or are they too many to number? Do you go to God when you need him? Or do you continuously walk with him? Do you sacrifice your time to worship God when the church gathers? Or do you make your life a living sacrifice to God? How do we get there? How do we get to the second half of these questions? We see in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, that before you can eat the meat, you have to, you have to drink milk, just as babies do. Before they can chew solid food, they have to live on milk. The Apostle Paul writes, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive to receive it. Indeed, you are still not able, for you are still fleshly. The Corinthians were learning how to behave as Christians at this time. They were still openly involved in, 
and promiscuity, sexual immorality, and even argued over the Lord's Supper, leaving none for some. Paul tells us in Hebrews 5.12 that you ought to be teachers by now. He says, for though, for, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For any, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Why do we need to practice? Well, for one reason, your heart will deceive you. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, wrote, The heart is deceitful above all things. Jeremiah 17, 9. We find in Genesis 6, 5, And God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And there is a way that seems right unto man, but in the end it leads to, leads to death. That's Proverbs 4.12. So then how do we practice? Joshua told the Israelites about the old law. In Joshua 1.8-9, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. <clears throat> So that you may be careful to do all that, all that, do all according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have success. Next he gives them encouragement. We all need encouragement, don't we? He goes on to say, I have not, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. Let's look at Psalms 1, 1 and 2. And as we do, answer the question, where is the attention of this man that the psalmist talks about? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, it says, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is where? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If I had time, I'd read... Uh, all of Psalms chapter 63, it's a declaration of deep longing for God from David. Instead, I'll read from, from the, the, the eight verses, or the first eight verses of Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment your bones. Who doesn't want refreshment to their bones and healing to their body? In closing, I'd like to revisit the first five questions that I asked earlier and rephrase them as a statement, because we all have to start somewhere. You can't allow God to fill up your life 
unless you first put God somewhere in your life. You can't stop thinking about him unless you remember him. You can't see your blessings as too many to number if you've never tried to number them. You can't walk continuously with God if you don't first know that you can go to him when you need him. You can't make your life a living sacrifice unless you're willing to sacrifice something in your life for God. <clears throat> if, if you are a Christian and you have not been living as you ought to and you know that, Acts 3.19 tells us, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. If you are not a Christian and you'd like to be, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and he with me and I will dine with him. If you hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, you can have that with Jesus. If we can study with you or pray for you or whatever your need is, please let us know. Thank you.